This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. All right, guys, uh, this is episode two for season two of the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast, and this whole episode is going to be all about our After the Kill and Cooking Wild Game with Jason Thornton, uh, Mr. Edible Outdoors Cook out of Lafayette, Louisiana. Jason, thanks for joining us today, man. Absolutely. We also have Locke, the uh, co-host of the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast as well on the phone. So uh, Jason ha- caught our attention Um, a year or so ago on social media. Um, You know, it's one thing as bow hunters, we're really passionate about bow hunting, but uh, it seems that the passion for cooking doesn't always follow as heavily or as or as um as intensely as jason promotes he's a a big proponent of really taking full advantage of everything that you kill making a lot of really impressive meals and and when i say impressive that doesn't necessarily mean that they're difficult so um today we're going to learn a little bit about his passion and um and see if we can learn some ways to incorporate a few new things in the kitchen for us. Before we get started, Locke's going to give a shout out to the sponsor of the Louisiana Bow Order Podcast. Locke, kick it off, man. So again, we're sponsored by Relentless Boats. If you haven't heard of Relentless Boats, it's a custom boat builder out of Thibodeau. You can check everything out at RelentlessBoatsLA.com. And that website is uh, kind of new stuff hitting the site every day. Um, soon you'll be able to check out. We're going to have some dealer models. So follow on Instagram and Facebook, social media, and check out RelentlessBoatsLA.com, Louisiana Made, and uh, check them out. They're making some great products down on the bayou in Thibodeau. All right. Thanks, man. Relentless. Thanks for the support this season, guys. So, Jason, let's kick this off. So, 
uh, you made a good point when we were about to start recording about uh, wanting to make sure that people were well informed on the best ways to take care of your wild game. So after you kill something, regardless of how it's killed, what's your uh, method of, of making sure that you have the best quality product and meat to bring home to your family? Well, it starts off after the kill, cooling the product down as quickly as possible, whether that's a deer or a hog. The initial process, and for all the public land hunters, uh, getting the innards out as quickly as possible. It, uh, I can't express enough um, the amount of heat that's trapped inside the, the stomach cavity. Getting that done, getting your, your animal checked in as quickly as possible, and then getting the skin off. Cooling it off is, is half the battle. Uh, I do it as quickly as humanly possible. But of course, you know, a good, quick, clean kill uh, is instrumental in, in the, the quality of the meat as well. I'm uh, curious to know. Okay, so I guess I'm one of these people that likes to understand. When I learn something, I don't want to just know it. I want to understand it. So, uh, you know, what is it? What's taking place with the meat and the tissue uh, as far as the cooling off? What is it that makes it uh, better? What is that cooling process doing that better prepares the meat for processing? Well, you're once the animal, once the uh, the heart stops, the uh, the animal will go into rigor, uh, and then will start to decompose. Essentially, uh, you know, the longer it, it takes to to cool it off, the more that you're you're going to start experiencing that that aspect of it. Uh, cooling it off uh, just delays that process. Uh, so l- let me ask you this. Is, let's, let's give some people some situations here. So let's say you're, um, I don't know, half a mile from the truck on public land. You shoot, you're deer hunting, but you shoot a hog, not a big one, maybe a 70 pound sow or something like that. Do you field dress or are you dragging that out and cleaning it when you get back to the camp after the, the check-in station? In that scenario, I would field dress it, field dress it, uh, get it on the four wheeler as soon as possible, get it to the, to the skinning shed get the skin off, get into a nice chest. Now, you know, I don't want to freak people out and, and make you think that you've got, you know, 10 minutes to get this done. You've mm-hmm. got some time. Uh, but I'm not going to delay the process. I'm not going to drive around town and show everybody off, you know, the hog off, uh, you know, take a whole bunch of pictures and, and get your buddies involved. I, I get the meat uh, into the cooler as, as quickly as possible. Now, obviously, the weather has a lot to do with it too, Right. Um, absolutely. You know, of course it, it, it sounds obvious. Some of, a lot of this sounds obvious, but it's, you'd be surprised how many people don't know this stuff. Um, I mean, if it's a 75 degree day, um, it's that much harder to get it cooled down and that much harder to get that, that, um, that meat down to a low enough temperature where it stops that decomposing process. Like you said, pretty much your clock starts the second the heart stops. And, exactly. and so if you are, um, Deer, hogs, doesn't matter what it is. If you're in a hot weather season where it's not at least, I don't know, let's let's put a cutoff of, um, I don't know, 45 degrees or 40 degrees outside. Um, you've got a really short time limit on how quickly you can get that temperate body temp down, the guts out, the hide off, and the body temp down before the meat starts to go bad. If you leave anything overnight, if you kill it, quickly and it's not still alive overnight if you kill it quickly and it's you know below what 50 degrees or something like that would you would you agree with that 
um, yes. and you leave it for eight hours, there's a, a pretty good chance that it's not going to be good in the morning when you find it. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, these guys that are getting ready to start hunting, it's imperative. You make an, an evening shot and the deer runs off, you know, in two weeks when the season starts or three weeks when the season starts. If you have to leave it overnight, I wouldn't trust the meat at all. What other uh, after the kill processes do you go through, Jason? Even so much so after the hide comes off and even to your point, uh, when you start breaking down, when you start quartering the animal, uh, you can see even on those cold days after the hide comes off an hour later, once you get that, that first ham off the animal, you can still feel the heat. So even once that skin comes off, there's still a lot of retained heat deep into the muscles. Uh, and I see that mostly on that ball joint in the ham. Mm -hmm. Uh, so continuing the process, once you get the hide off of breaking it down into the quarters is still important. If the temperature, and it doesn't happen often in South Louisiana, if the temperature allows you to hang it overnight, even the better. Yeah. Uh, even if you can hang it for a couple of days, even more amazing. Uh, but we just don't get that, that opportunity much unless you have a walk-in cooler in, in most hunting camps. Yeah, that's something that we we don't get a we don't have that uh, benefit of of cold weather where we can leave a a deer to hang for a week and kind of start to age a little bit in the garage or something. And we don't <laughs> we just don't have and, that. And even more so, uh, we break down our animals. Uh, I don't. Uh, we break down the rear hams into individual muscle groups, and you can tell the difference uh, after two or three days of it hanging. It's so much easier. Uh, that skin becomes uh, a film, mm -hmm. and you can peel it away so easily. And each muscle group just—it it almost just separates on its own. I actually—I uh, don't remember where it was, but I read something online this week, and it was obviously guys up north, uh, or or as you mentioned, guys with walk-in coolers, and they were talking about that. And I guess I'm going back to some of the same questions, and you hit on a little bit of that, but. Uh, what all is taken you, if you if you have the ability to, to let that meat age for a couple of days or whatnot what's what's taking place outside of is there anything taking place in that meat outside of just you know like you said it, it becoming easier to to separate aside from that is there something else that's happening that makes it more flavorful or or whatnot now, I'm not a scientist but the enzymes as I understand it there's there are enzymes in the meat and it starts breaking it down, the, the tissue, the meat tissue, uh, just like you'd get an aged steak at the store. Uh, the enzymes are breaking down the meat and uh, tenderizing it and making yeah. it more flavorful. I don't understand the chemistry aspect of it, but as I understand, it's the enzymes that break it down. Yeah, you know, I often hear about people. I know I've got an uncle that every deer he kills, every single deer he kills, he, dra he gets the, as soon as he finds the deer before he loads it up, you know, he gets it to a, a slope, an incline of some kind, and he lays it out and cuts its throat so it'll start bleeding out. What's that all about? I don't do any of that. <laughs> I don't I, I don't bleed my deer. Uh, I, I prefer, a, a, you know, and maybe it's in my mind. I don't, again, I don't know the chemistry of it, but to me, once you bleed it out, I mean, you're letting natural juices, natural juices out of the, out of the meat. Uh, and, you know, nobody wants a dry cut of meat. Everybody wants a juicy cut. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I've never bled a deer ever. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I've always heard that. I mean, my whole life I've always heard, you know, bleed them out, get the blood out of the meat, et cetera.
What's your take on it, Kyler? So my take on it is, is um, I believe people that, that um, are bleeding out deer or trying to get the blood out of the meat, I think that's where they're um, trying to give credit to the blood as being where the gaminess is held. And there is some gaminess in the blood. But for me, every deer that I've ever killed and processed myself and then either ground up or cut into steaks or, or just had backstrap – the, the hard, heavy, gamey, pungent flavor or smell was actually held in the sinew and that silver skin that you were talking about cutting out a second ago. I don't think that it's in the blood, per se, as it is in the ligaments and the silver skin, and most importantly, in the glands. We need to talk about getting that out of there, because if you grind <laughs> that up in there, you've ruined a whole batch of meat, pretty much. And so I, I've never bled them. I, I do want to ask you, you know, do you put it over ice? I want to understand your process better. You quarter up animals, and then you just said that you're getting them into their separate muscle groups. Are you breaking them down into muscle groups the same day that you're quartering them? Or is there a time period that goes by and you do that a couple of days later? I do it a couple of days later. Okay. I'll put it into the ice chest to, to finish the cooling process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have these these large plastic food tubs that I'll use. I'll put each quarter into a food tub into the refrigerator, and that's my process to let it age because I don't have a walk-in cooler. And then uh, I'll break it down four or five days later into individual muscle groups. So we have a very very similar process. I'll take the what order do I do this in? All right, you got the deer hanging upside down. You take the hide off. I cut the back shafts out first. Cut the shoulders off second reach in and grab the inside tenderloins, cut the neck off, and then lastly, I'm cutting um, the the spine, and then all you have left hanging is the two uh, hindquarters. Now, do you saw down the middle of the hindquarters, like in the pelvis, or are you cutting around the ball and dropping No, I saw down the middle. Yeah, me too. I got a sawzall with like a 12-inch blade, and it makes quick work of that. Um, Absolutely. I love that. Put all that in the big cooler put ice on it and then I let that drain. I don't, I don't, I don't have it in ice water per se. It's not submerged, but I let that drain and just stay iced for, I mean, I've kept it in there for as long as 11 days without any issues, but I like that seven to five to five to nine day mark is about when I have time to go back in and like do the whole breakdown process. Like you're talking about, is that similar to yours? What What are you doing? I do the fairly similar i think the only thing that i didn't hear you mention were the ribs Mm -hmm. but i do i do cut the ribs out and i also uh on every deer that i kill i keep the heart oh yeah that's a good point i'll reach down into the gut pile and cut the heart out yeah so um i have I'll, i'll be honest i have not been a huge fan of organs of, of any type uh, ever, <laughs> maybe outside of like foie gras or something like that back in my New Orleans days. Um, but organs have never been a thing for me. Liver and onions, uh, I'd rather stay away. That stuff has always been more in the, the catfish bait category than it has the table fare category. Maybe that's the city boy in me, but um, the heart I've heard is fantastic. I just I haven't had it. I haven't cooked it. I haven't tried it. That's just never been my thing. Um, but uh, I, ha- I do have friends that will – like I could offer them two, two sections of backstrap. They're like, no, I'm good. Give me the heart. 
Well, I have a confession to make. Okay. I'll sit at the skinning shed and take other people's hearts. Really? <laughs> they don't keep them either. I'll, I'll take every last one. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I told you when we first got on the phone today was I really, I'm really intrigued by your venison rib uh, uh, recipe. You, you made some venison ribs. That was today, right? That was this morning. That was this morning. So, um, what was the uh, the ribs that you made today, man? Tell us about that. So we were on a dove hunt this morning, and I kind of planned out a utensilless meal for after the hunt. The night before, uh, I had parboiled the ribs for a couple of hours, mm-hmm. uh, and what I I would have rather had done it in crab boil, but unbeknownst to me, I was out. Yeah. Instead, I used uh, seafood stock, salt, pepper, you know, the spice of your choice, the Tony's, and seafood stock. Boiled it for about an hour and a half. The ribs were starting to pull away from the meat. Uh, drained it, cooled it back off, put it in the cooler. This morning on a charcoal grill, uh, put it on the charcoal grill, basted it up with my favorite barbecue sauce, and it was amazing after the hunt. Uh, the ribs were tender. The bones pulled out immediately. There was a nice glaze from the barbecue sauce from the fire. It, it made for a wonderful tailgate meal. That's awesome. So, and that's exactly what I did. Uh, the ribs, if you if you take a slab of ribs, of venison ribs, and you cut them up in half lengthwise, so you have a top portion and a bottom portion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, I like to cut into the meat to where I have three bone sections. So cut across the, the middle. you got top and ha- top and bottom. And then you probably have about five three bone sections from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, two ways I cook it. The one the way I just described. And I've also put those sections into a smoker. Smoked it for several hours over mesquite. And then I'll dump those, those sections, those rib sections, into uh, red beans or white beans. And let them cook down that way, and it gives it a good smoky flavor. And and you pull the bones out of those red beans, and you're just left with you know chunks of rib of goodness. Yeah, that sounds mm. awesome. <laughs> that sounds really good. <laughs> so so let, let me ask you this: Do you mess with the ribs on every deer that you kill, or is it only on certain size deer that that you find it's worth it? I don't. I'm like you. Uh, I use the gutless method as well. Oddly enough, the deer ribs from this morning were on about a from they were from an eighty pound doe. Really, uh, she was fat. Uh, she was small but fat, and she had quite the quite the rib cage. Yeah. So I saw that's the, where that one came from. I saw the picture, and and the ribs look really big. I guess you just took a really close up picture, then, huh? Well, what happened was the meat starts pulling away, and the meat will shrink, and the ribs obviously won't. So you'll see a lot more rib bone. Mm-hmm. exposed now to add to that uh the night before i took a pair of shears kitchen shears and i cut off the the rib tips mm-hmm. so that they weren't jagged and they didn't look bad so i cleaned it up because you eat with your eyes first right yeah yeah um so i did i cleaned up the the rib tips and uh it was a very small dough i don't always keep the ribs like you no. but and once you clean it you, you you take the skin off, you can almost tell. Oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna save these ribs. These are mm-hmm. beautiful ribs, or I've got a scrawny dough that, you know, nah, not worth it. Yeah. 
Now, when you're when you still got your deer hanging and you and you want the ribs, are you um, are you taking your sawzall down that spine and just cutting them off at the spine after you take the back strap out? That's exactly what I'm doing. Okay. Now, so after you do that, you got this kind of oblong shape, uh, you know, half a deer in your hands. Are you trimming up that skirt section that's hanging off the bottom, or are you keeping that on? I'm trimming it up. Okay. And I I like that for uh, certain uh, Mexican dishes, tacos, fajitas. Then that's kind of the typical uh, cut for for those dishes. You're doing like strips, like almost not shredded, obviously, but. Well, I'll keep the flank steak whole, and uh, I'll marinate it and put it on the pit, and then you cut it to your desired uh, size. I like to cut them thick. I like I like to taste the meat when I eat a feed. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, man, I'm. And really the good hungry. thing is, it's <laughs> such a small cut of steak; it does not take long. Yeah. And it, I think, at this point, it's you know, it might behoove me to say that. I don't cook any of my wild game past medium. Yes. If I and it starts to scare me once I get to medium. Do medium you, rare to medium is where I live with wild game. Do you let uh, like if you're cooking a backstrap or any steak or a roast, do you let it rest or are you eating it pretty much as soon as it comes off the grill? I let it rest. Okay. So you're and I know you've you've said it in the past. We you're a proponent of sous vide, and sous vide and wild game were meant to meant to be together. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I live at the 129 range. Uh, I don't know if you want to explain sous vide what what that process does. No, you but, tell them. You tell them what it is. I I talked about it last week. They they're tired of hearing me talking. Well, sous vide is a, a, a essentially it's a, a wand that you stick into a, a a water bath, and it will heat the water to a certain temperature. Uh, you then take your cut of meat or whatever you plan on cooking in it. Uh, vacuum seal it, season it the way you want to, submerge it into that water, and let the the heated water do the rest. Uh, red meat, uh, and I think you mentioned it last week. You do one twenty nine and a half. Uh, I like the one twenty nine even, mm-hmm. uh, and it is a foolproof way of getting your backstrap or whatever steak that you want medium rare. Yeah. And the beautiful thing of it is, is that it's medium rare from edge to edge it there's no chard where it's you know if you put it on a a pit well the outside is medium well then there's a layer of you know medium you know and then medium rare in the very the very center of it Mm -hmm. this thing is medium rare from the very edge the top edge to the bottom edge it's incredible it's beautiful it's, it's magic yeah it's sorcery is what it is it's it's witchcraft uh for the kitchen kitchen witchcraft is what absolutely is. and uh, i would like to reverse sear mine uh two ways i'll do it uh, on my gas grill outside uh and it's been on for you know 20 30 minutes and it's as hot as it'll get mm-hmm. or i have a large uh, cast iron skillet and i'll melt uh, i'll get it hot and throw in a pat of butter and some olive oil and then char it that way as well mm-hmm yeah, you have to finish it. And it's the, and just anybody that if there's anybody that is interested in getting a, a, a immersion cooker or a, a sous, people call a sous vide a thing. A sous vide is not a thing. A sous vide is a method, um, but a sous vide machine, um, the the immersion cooker um, is. Uh, 
if anybody's interested in getting one because we're talking about it or if you've been thinking about it in the past, just be forewarned that your fully cooked meat does not look very appetizing directly out of the bag. Um, not at all. It it looks gray, looks kind of, you know, not the best um, because you have a fully cooked piece of meat. It sounds odd. Like you, you don't think that cooking at such a low temperature of 129 will cook a piece of meat all the way through because of our, our whole lives. We're used to cooking things in the oven or on the stovetop where we're cooking at high heat in order to get, you know, that doneness all the way through the potato or the egg or the, you know, the piece of meat that we're cooking. We're cooking high heat on the outside to get a, a, a reasonable heat on the inside. And um, with a sous vide, what you have when you're cooking inside a bag in water, you're in um, a micro-regulated temperature environment in which the um, energy from the water transfers to the meat very efficiently and very effectively, and it heats it up quickly, um, but not it never overcooks it. That's the key is you cannot overcook in a sous vide as long as you are, have, have the right uh, temperature settings. And so that allows you to do a few things that you can't do with other cooking methods. You can cook for 8 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. I've done a 24-hour backstrap. I don't recommend it. It starts to kind of break down from the outside. It gets almost like mushy. Um, I wouldn't go past the 8 to 12-hour mark on a piece of wild game in my experience. I've tried it for 24. I've tried it for 12. I've tried it for 18. And anything past that 8-hour mark is kind of the point of uh, diminished returns, essentially, where you just don't – like you're not gaining anything. Um, um, but if you do, you know Alton Brown. Do you remember his his show on TV? I do. Okay, what was Good the name? Eats. Yeah, Goodies. So Alton Brown is um, a uh, intellectual genius, and he does a great job of explaining processes to people. He uses a lot of um, visual explanations, analogies, and things like that. But when you hold a piece of meat, whether in the oven or it's through the sous vide method, when you hold it at a certain temperature. Um, in which you're not overcooking it, but you're higher than the breakdown point of the ligaments or the fats. When you hold it there for a long point, point of time, um, you have a better product to an extent. That's the whole reason why you know Texans are so um, proud of cooking brisket, right? Is because a brisket takes, I mean, it can take a full day, maybe two days to cook, if you depending on what your method is. But a brisket's a very fatty piece of meat. And if you cook it perfectly, then the fats break down. It becomes very tender, but it's fully cooked all the way through. Um, on wild game, we don't have that. It's very lean meat. We don't have a bunch of fats to break down. We don't have a lot of ligaments to break down. So what you're actually breaking down are the individual like red meat cells, and that doesn't yield the same results as if you had a fatty piece of meat. So um, the sous vide process is, like you said, it's made for wild game. Um, it lends itself well to other things, but wild game is just a match made in heaven. Um, I love it. Another benefit that I found is that you don't have to do it in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. A bucket of water, an ice chest of water, you can free up your kitchen to do other things and have the sous vide in, in a five gallon bucket, you know, off to the side somewhere or in an ice chest. Mm -hmm. it, it, it really helps me in that way too, especially for, you know, family meals, Thanksgiving, Christmas, where I'm, I've got all all burners on the stove rolling, 
and I can have the sous vide off to the side doing its thing and, and not take up a burner. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, there's a lot of Facebook groups about cooking with sous vide methods and, uh, you have a lot of really great, great, um, uh, ideas that come from that. There's a lot of things, cooking things, even vegetables that you wouldn't think of. Um, I, I love, uh, hard boiled eggs. Um, I could eat my weight in hard boiled eggs every day. I a high protein, um, you know, decent calories, low fat, low, no carb. And, um, but I have, uh, there's a, I don't like, I don't like, uh, overcooked yolks. Right. So we will cook, um, hard boiled eggs in the sous vide. It takes like, you know, an hour to two hours to cook them, but they're absolutely perfect. And there is an exact temperature for, uh, 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 an egg in which the yolk is that perfect solid sun yellow, like yellow, like the sun, but it is an overcooked chalky flaky where it falls apart. If you were to crack it in half, you know? Um, so there's a lot of things that it lends itself uh, to. So the other thing is they're affordable. I think, you know, Amazon and Target, a couple of other places, they run specials on them. They're only like 125 bucks. This isn't like some $500 machine we're talking about here. This, this literally fits in a, a kitchen drawer, you know, it's, yep. it's tiny. So, um, yeah, the sous vide is a, a great addition to the kitchen. Tell me some other ways that are your go-to ways for cooking wild game. Well, like I said before, we, we break down the back leg. And almost everything in there, uh, we cut it to steaks. Uh, there's another set of, uh, I've heard them called hidden tenderloins in the back hams. Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially we get four tenderloins out of every deer. Uh, we do a lot of stuff on the pit. Uh, but one of my favorite things is I'll take one of those back muscle groups and uh, corn it and make turn it into corned venison. Hmm. And to me, there's almost nothing more satisfying than eating your sandwich for lunch and it's corned venison and it's delicious. And, you know, it came from you. Um, so I do a lot of the, the corned venison sandwich meat out of some of the the back hams as well. Can you explain what corned venison is and the process to do that? So there's a a nitrate that you use. Uh, it's an Insta cure. Number one is what I use. And you can get this at any kitchen restaurant place, or I think even Cabela's might sell it. Uh, you put it in with some uh, coriander seeds, some black pepper, uh, bay leaves, mustard seeds, nothing crazy. You know, all this stuff, you know, from any grocery store. Uh, you cook the, the brine down. You put the the, the, the muscle group in the, the brine for a week in the refrigerator. You take it out. You cook it down in a broth. Let it cool. Slice it as thin as humanly possible. And you've got sandwich meat. Interesting. <laughs> Delicious sandwich meat. And if we kind of mentioned earlier and kind of joked that, uh, you know, some families may not like venison so much. Mm-hmm. I can almost guarantee you if they didn't know what they were eating, they were, you know, it's, it's, it tastes like it came from the store. Yeah. Like it's a beef dish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, let, let's talk about that, about getting people to like venison. And um, I've got a lot of friends who's, whose wives or kids won't won't come near the stuff or you say the V word and, and they're turning their nose up at it. Like, Oh, that's gross. And, and I think some of that's learned behavior. I think it's maybe a personal preference that has been pushed off on the kids. Um, and then on the other hand, I also believe more heavily that somebody had a bad experience with venison. Um, meaning 
you had something that was nearly inedible because everything was ground up into the sausage, the sinew, the silver skin, the t- the ligaments, and most importantly, that gland we were talking about that's in um, it's uh, in the hindquarters. And, I, and I, I'm I'm blanking right now. I cannot remember if there's one in the um, the shoulders as well. There's one uh, just above the elbow. Above the elbow, okay. Um, but the, the one in the in the hindquarter that you speak of, if you grind that up, you I agree, you'll never eat venison again. You'll never eat it again. It's it's the it is the culprit i believe of all bad venison that anybody's ever had is a very fast debone of um the hindquarters and ground up and um it it contaminates everything like to the point of like i would say this if you accidentally slice through the gland with your knife get a different knife um put it put it aside get a different knife because if you keep like have you ever have you ever cut something with onions and then you cut this using the same knife with onions you cut something else and you can taste onions on it yep okay it's the same thing with that gland you're just transferring the the fatty deposits in the in in the the portions of that gland that is on that knife you're just transferring it to another piece of meat and it is not edible it is not something that is enjoyable um now what the gland looks like it's about the size of um it's about the size of like a large marble man how would you describe it it almost it's it's always kind of like this oblong amoeba shape it's kind of gray um it's it's blackish gray uh it's more times than not it's it's covered in some type of white fatty tissue yes but you can kind of start seeing the coloration through the fat mm-hmm. uh it's very distinct once you get to it you can see it very easily uh and i'm just like you i i, I, I use my fingers i'll pull it away slice through it get rid of it as, as quickly as possible and so, uh, if anybody is is just learning what it is or what it looks like now or wondering what it looks like um it doesn't look like anything else that you're going to cut out of that leg. Nothing else. It doesn't look like a piece of meat. It can't be mistaken for something else. It is generally stuffed in some in like some uh, like you said fat um, fat fattiness fat area deep like next to the bone um, deep in the hind quarter. And if you don't cut that out, and you grind that up. You will not be eating venison from that deer very often. It is not enjoyable. Um, but you said earlier that your secret to getting people to like your venison is to get it to taste as much like beef as possible. Of course, a deer doesn't taste exactly like beef. That is, I guess what your analogy there is to get it to taste as, as mild as possible. Maybe would you agree with that? Make it not be a super harsh flavor. I'm not saying don't have gaminess. But I am saying, you know, you definitely don't want your sin, sinew, silver skin, ligaments, and glands in there because that is what the I think people attribute the quote-unquote venison gaminess to are those four things. I agree. The You know, I, I keep the silver skin on my meat for the freezing process to help uh, with uh, freezer burn. Mm-hmm. And that's it. As soon as the I'm ready to prepare the, the the meal, I'll cut the silver skin off. But to your point, if I've got somebody that's never had venison before, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give them a very uh, I, I'm gonna start them off slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may start them off with jerky, you know, jerky. Everybody likes jerky, uh, and let them taste it and let them know hey, it's, it's venison. Uh, a lot of times, you can introduce somebody uh, who doesn't like it or or has never had it. Uh, 
help it along with with a sauce. Uh, we do a lot of sauces, very simple crawfish cream sauce or add some lump crab meat or uh, a little red wine reduction with mushrooms to help with the to help with the meat spaghettis just to get their mind right uh spaghetti and chili Mm -hmm. you know you're eating venison but nine times out of ten you can't tell it's venison because it tastes like chili yeah uh a lot of like you said a lot of it's in in most people's minds uh so if you can introduce them to to venison in that fashion where hey this is venison's chili just take a bite oh it's good it's chili It's, it's hidden and then we'll start from there next time they come over i may do something else and then pretty soon they're you know they're eating grilled venison hearts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next thing you know, next thing you know, you can tell them what they're eating before they eat it. You know exactly, and they won't hit you when you tell them what they, what, what they just had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like that nutria stew that you try to sucker them into having that one time. <laughs> exactly, so. roadkill possum. So, Locke, what um, what do y'all do with with uh, with your kills at your house, man? What's your process? Well, I'm a little bit more. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Uh, lackadaisical. I'm, I'm a little less, I like to cook. I like to spend time in the kitchen. And so I guess, you know, like most people, I guess my, uh, harvest to skinning shed processing methods, pretty standard. I, you know, we talk about it a lot on here. I hunt, you know, private property for the most part. So nine out of 10 deer that I, kill or that my family or you know that i'm involved in in uh, taking care of you know we got a pretty quick process assuming that the you know the clean quick harvest pretty quick process to getting the deer you know to the camp to the skin and shed and and um you know i've done the gutless method some and i don't have a really good reason for why i don't or haven't stuck with it it's just really more uh you use the term learn behavior you know we always gutted our deer, so mm-hmm. I still do. It's probably just, a, 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 like I said, more of a, um, a a function of just habit. But anyway, we so, you know, we get the deer in and, um, you know, split it, gut it, skin it. And, you know, typically what I do is I'll start the quartering process and I will take out parts that I want to take home and do certain things with you know tenderloin and you know some of that uh, ham meat and stuff like that that i i want to prepare for myself and then the rest of it i typically you know get it cooled down get it quartered up and deboned sometimes fully deboned sometimes partially and the rest i'll generally take to one of my favorite processors and just get my ground meat done by a processor so uh you know that's that's typical what I do with most of my deer. And as far as the, the meat that I do bring home, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the last, um, the last episode, but I do a lot of different tenderloin stuff on the stovetop. Mm-hmm. Um, just fajita meat and steak meat, you know, the, the, the Southern favorite fried tenderloin, you know, uh, chunks of tenderloin, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, that's it really, man. I, I, I've, I'm one of these people, I guess I listen to this and the sous vide method and some of these other things that you guys have talked about every year. I tell myself, I'm going to, I'm going to take a chunk of meat and I'm going to do something different. And 
you know, every now and then I do that. But for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty typical. I handle the tenderloins for myself, do some stuff like that. And then get my sausage and ground meat done at a processor. Do you do steaks with the hindquarters or are you relying on your, um, your, uh, I guess well, chunk meat from the backstrap? Yeah. Well, recently, um, Jason mentioned there's a, there's an area in the, uh, in the back, uh, ham quarters, whatever you want to call them, where you can get some, some steak meat there. So I get that. And then, um, other than that, yeah, backstrap and, those inner tenderloin uh strips but yeah i have i haven't I, I, honestly you asked that it's not something i've done uh my whole life just i've kind of been introduced to it probably over the last two or three years um of actually getting some of that tenderloin out of the um out of the back hams and mm-hmm. instead of you know i guess for most of my life we've just quartered that up and took the whole the whole thing and let them ground up all that for for ground meat or sausage or whatever, but there is some really good steak meat back there. I, I've got a question for you, Jason. What kind of uh, what kind of equipment do you have to do all this stuff at your house? Large cutting board, a really sharp fillet knife, a fishing fillet knife is what I use mm-hmm. to uh, break down all the the muscle groups. And several years ago, a friend and I went in halves on a, a commercial grinder, and it's been one of the best investments I've ever had. Uh, the front legs pretty much go to uh, grind. I'll keep the neck roast as a roast or the neck as a roast. Mm-hmm. The back straps go into a steak cut. The tenderloins go into a steak cut. And the back legs uh, will go uh, into steak cuts. And then the only thing I have left after that are uh, the ribs and the shanks. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we need you, to talk you about You mentioned that. earlier that you use a sawzall. I have a, 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 a meat blade for my sawzall. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll cut the shanks off of it uh, m- much better if you pre-freeze the shanks because mm-hmm. they cut very neatly. Uh, if you cut it when it's you know refrigerator temperature, it's a jello mess. Cut them with the sawzall, and the shanks become these beautiful little medallions of you know pre-osubuco, mm-hmm. which is you know heaven on earth. So uh, the shanks are the portion of the leg below the the knee, right, and above the hoof, where you still have decent, uh, you could say, tissue, a decent amount of tissue. Am I right? Yes. Okay. So you're you're, um, I guess when you're when you're taking the hide off, do you do you take the hide all the way down to the hoof? Are you cutting it off at the hoof then? I'm cutting it just below the shanks. Just below the shanks. All right. So. Um, yeah, the shanks are. I'm glad you brought that up, man. I forget about those every single time. I do too. I almost never get those. I've always had the um, opinion, not the opinion. That's not the right word. I've always had the assumption that there was a lot of tendon, ligament, and all of that in there, and so I've never really fooled with that. There is, but if you cook it low and slow in in a braise, mm-hmm. then all that pretty much just melts away. Mm-hmm. and okay. it becomes fork tender uh and you can serve it over your your, your preferred starch mm-hmm. but that's the only the only thing i'll do with the with the shanks is also buco 
Yeah, and it's <laughs> it, it's that's pro- I don't have a lot of regrets in life, guys, but I do regret every time that my uncle cooks, cooks <laughs> he he cooks down braised shanks and and I eat it, and then I think about all the ones that I've you know I've cut off at the knee and thrown in the gut pile, you know. Oh yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, I, I'm gonna do that this year. That that's gonna be one of the goals of mine this year with cooking is um make sure I'm taking advantage of the shanks. Well, um, the funny thing is, it's so easy that. And it's so delicious that when you, if you serve it to somebody, they think you're a master chef and, you know, you can play along with it. Mm-hmm. It's so stinking simple. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I always forget about those. Oh, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, the, the year I killed last year, I didn't do anything with them. Um, but uh, it's always something that I, I wish I would take advantage of. So I'm going to make it a point to take advantage of that this year for sure. And even really nice is that. You know, even a large, mature, six-and-a-half-year-old buck, the exact same principles apply. You get bigger shanks, and all that sinew and, and connective tissue melts down, mm-hmm. and it's just as tender as it were if it were an 80-pound doe. You, you, you mentioned an old older deer like that. Do you believe um, that uh, older deer have different properties of quality than than when i say younger deer i don't mean like they just the spots just fell off but maybe a year or two or three year old deer i do believe that the the larger more mature bucks uh, do taste differently than a you know a two and a half year old doe uh the and you have to adjust accordingly and of course you know the stage in which you killed it did you kill it after it just ran a doe and you, you made a poor shot and it ran a mile mm-hmm I'll probably turn a lot of that meat into ground meat. Uh, or did it, you know, pre-rut, the deer's not stressed, and you dropped it in its tracks? Then you start talking about cutting them up and not hiding the flavor as much, yeah. using a lot more of those muscle groups in in steak recipes. Now, what you're getting at there is essentially, you know, the swiftness in which it died has, uh, I, in my opinion – I have killed old deer. I've killed young deer. The biggest deer I've ever killed was aged out at eight and a half years old. And it, I mean, if you put it up against a two-year-old doe, I wouldn't have known any different other than the size uh, of the backstrap or the, you know, the way that, um, that it was, uh, sorry, other than the size of the backstrap or the, or, you know, how much meat I was getting off of it. Um, it didn't taste any different. Uh, at all, and I've killed a couple of deers where uh, deer, deers, I've killed a couple of deer that I I would have thought would have had a gamier flavor or a um, muskier uh, flavor to them. Even ones that are in hard, full, you know, full on rut, have not tasted any different. As long as you're taking care of them, as long as you're getting them cooled down quickly, as long as you're not dragging them through the mud and contaminating the meat with a bunch of hair and other things like that. But um, what you're getting at with the swiftness of killing them is how much essentially adrenaline pumps through it as it's dying. That is, I think, a big way to have a piece of meat or a piece of quality of your meat degrade is um, if you're you're introducing a stressful situation into the process of it um, dying, passing away. Um, I think that has more to do with it than any age whatsoever. But, um, then again, I haven't tasted every deer on the planet. So I don't, I've only, I don't even remember how many deer I've killed somewhere in the mid twenties. I've stopped counting, but, uh, I, I think it has more to do with the quality, the swiftness of the kill and how quickly we can get it broken down than it does the age of the deer. I agree. And I've had some deer that, uh, 
I don't do it and I don't, I don't mind, but some deer have, um, have been killed in front of dogs mm-hmm. and their meat is not near the quality of a arrested deer, you know, that, that was harvested otherwise. Some of that meat I- has been just extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that goes back to the adrenaline that, that was pumping through the yeah. deer uh, prior to the kill. I think another thing to, to make note of with that, and if you kill a, a, you know, an older buck, an older mature buck that lives in some very sparse piney woods, you know, they're feeding on a lot of natural browse and briars and stuff like that, as opposed to an old mature buck that's living near ag fields and, and eating a lot of high quality food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that makes a big difference too. I mean, you, you know, you hunt on the, I hunt most of my life. I've hunted along the Mississippi river bottom and, you know, one property, the other, and you know, they've got really good food down there between the agriculture that's up and down the river. And also, you know, the mass crop and the browse and that natural soil. And I, I killed deer that were old, you know, along that river bottom that's, you know, basically, been eating out of ag fields most of their life and, and all that and you can't tell the difference between that deer and uh you know the i guess what you would assume to be a you know two-year-old doe or something a young tender deer and and then inversely you know like you said jason i grew up in mississippi and i grew up you know on a big camp running dogs and you know you kill a, an old deer that's been ran by dogs and killed him in front of dogs and he's most of his diet's briars and whatever he can find in an old growth pine thicket. And, you know, it's a big difference, huge difference. Absolutely. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with your statement with the, their diet makes a huge difference. Oh, uh, the deer I've killed in the Midwest, you know, and obviously uh, go up to the Midwest and, you know, you're after big mature bucks. So most of the deer I've killed up there have been older deer. And they're some of the best eating deer that you'll kill because they live on corn and soybeans, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. So, well, really- so much so that the the beef ranchers uh, go so far as to tell you that it's corn-fed beef. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same, same principle. People say the same thing about ducks. Um, you know, ducks that have been, uh, you know, why some people think mallards and teal taste better than – other types of ducks is because mallards are going to be the pretty much the last ducks to be pushed down from um, uh, weather conditions. Normally, they have to be frozen out of an area. They have to be frozen south, um, and they'll stay in uh, fr- flooded cornfields or dry cornfields and eating grain and rice. Same thing with teal. Teal are going to eat a lot of grain and rice until they get down to uh, parts of the state where they're eating more vegetation and things like that. Um, but uh, same thing, their diet matters a lot. Um, you know, my father-in-law lives in Colorado, has been a mule deer hunter and antelope hunter his whole life. And, um, he said he's, he's killed some mule deer that you cut them open and, um, like it'll knock you on your ass. They smell so bad because they've eaten nothing but sagebrush. He goes, Mm -hmm. that meat just tastes, it tastes like sage plant. That's all it tastes like is just sage and not in a good way. Not in a pre-seasoned yeah. way, <laughs> and like yeah. a, I can't eat this way. You I've know? heard the same thing from guys out west. The yeah. guys out west that have eaten venison with me, and they're like, "Man, it's just compared to the mule deer that we kill." Mm-hmm. And the same thing, live off sage, brow sage brows, just a 
totally different meat. So, uh, you know, I, I go back again to, to the whole age of deer thing. Um, I think that it is coincidental that people think older deer taste worse or are tougher or something like that. Um, I think there's other things in play. I think we we have some great points we've made as far as diet matters. I think the only thing that trumps diet is um, how it was killed, the circumstance, uh, the um, like you said, a well rested deer, um, and that is something where, as a bow hunter, we have to remind ourselves that we are um, if we're true bow hunters, meaning meaning that we. Set, set we want an environment in which we are non-invasive and we're non-disruptive to the deer herd or a specific deer our goal is to be as non-disruptive as possible we want that deer at ease we don't want him on alert we don't want him to know that we are even enter the property at any point in time and if you think the opposite side of that i i couldn't think of anything that's more 180 degrees different than that than um, dog hunting that whole intention is to be disruptive to force them up and and make and get them moving and it's a very stressful environment and so I haven't done I haven't done any dog hunting I don't I'm not really in that circle I'm not against it I don't really care about um, things that don't affect me specifically it's just a style that I don't participate in Um, but I think you do get a different, um, quality product, uh, when you compare the two from bow hunting or, or just not bow hunting in general, but a non stressful death environment for that deer versus one where you're intentionally instilling stress into it so that you can find it and shoot it. I think those two factors are are more important when it comes to the quality of game of how it died and what it's been eating than how old it is. Um, or even what cycle it's in, if it's in rut or not. I think all of that stuff can be made up for with diet and, and, uh, in circumstance of how it was killed. So, um, that's a good point, Locke. I'm glad you brought that up. I I think I've been overlooking that. I think if you want to go deeper into that point without dragging that out too far, I mean, it's, it's probably not that far fetched to imagine that in, the majority that we're talking about where, you know, where these opinions are derived, you're talking about a large group of people that hunt in a high stress hunting camp environment. Right. And the only time or the, the majority of the time that a mature buck is killed, it's probably in a high stress situation where he's either in the rut and he's been chasing a doe or he's been spooked and got on his feet in the daylight for some reason because he lives on a piece of property where there's a lot of hunting pressure. And so over time, as those numbers weigh themselves out, you know, these opinions are being derived from deer that are killed in low quality environments, high stress environments, and particularly in a situation where that deer is unusually up on his feet in the daylight, moving, either chasing a doe or evading uh, uh, human presence. And so because of that, all the things that we just talked about, it's kind of easy to see where these these opinions have, uh, you know, turned into accepted fact. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, guys, on this week's Shop of the Week, we're on the phone with Lee Benoit from Bowie Outfitters in Baton Rouge. Lee, thanks for joining us, man. 
Absolutely, Kyler. Glad to be here, buddy. Hey, tell us a little bit about y'all's archery section and uh, Bowie Outfitters in general. So Bowie Outfitters is, is definitely known for our archery department. I mean, we are a full-line dealer. Uh, we carry Hoyt. We carry Matthews, PSC, Bear, Bowtech, uh, Diamond. Uh, we've pretty much got everybody as far as uh, crossbows. We're, we're 10 Point, Barnett, Raven, I mean, Carbon Express. We... We try to have something for everybody, um, but not just having them on the wall for sale like most shops do. I mean, we have got a uh, we've got a full line shop uh, with with Troy Laborde as our as our Bowtech. Um, you know, we can do any kind of work that's done to your bows. We can cut your arrows for you, insert them, have you ready. Uh, not only are we selling package bows off the wall, we're rigging out bows, you know, left and right with with top of the line equipment, not just you know the the package stuff that's coming on them uh i mean we are we're known for it and and it's kind of what we it's kind of what we lean on at Bowie outfitters that's great man so y'all have had troy on staff for man as long as i've been coming there how many years has troy been on board with y'all troy's been there a while i mean it feels like six years it feels it could be eight years by now i mean time time's starting to slip away <laughs> yeah. uh with my mind with troy but he's, he's been there a long time and and uh, it's when it comes to actually working on a bow, I'd put Troy up against anybody. I mean, he does fantastic work in that shop. He's gonna take care of the bow. The good thing about Troy is he's a hunter, but he's also a he's also a tournament shooter. So he knows how to get the best performance out of your bow. The, the biggest mistake most people make is year to year they treat their bow just like a gun. They take it out of the case, they go hunt with it. Take it out of the case, they go hunt with it. They have no idea that it's just like a vehicle. You've got to get it tuned up every once in a while. You got to rotate the tires and change the oil just the same way you do on your vehicle. So it's amazing how many bows come into that shop that Troy gets his hands on and the customer thinks everything is fine and Troy can tune it up for him, hand it back to him and they shoot it and go, Wow. Like, I didn't know my bow was supposed to feel like that. You know, it's Troy's done the tuning on my bow for years, and I've always said, man, it's shooting darts. You know, no tail exactly. whip, no up and down. You, you shoot a Luminoc, and, the, you know, you don't see it zigzagging downrange. I mean, he's, he does a great job. And, you know, what I was going to say is some of the greatest shops in the state have long tenured Bowtex people that you, you know for 10 five years you've gone in there and it's the same familiar face same trusting hands that you hand your bow off to so y'all definitely done a great job of keeping Troy board and I'm sure y'all retain a lot of customers for that reason so uh, absolutely absolutely well uh let's tell them about the event that we're having this week um you know podcast comes out on Tuesday this Thursday, we're having the very first ever Louisiana Bowhunter Meetup at Bowie Outfitters. Um, Thursday night, September 12th, it's from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Food and drinks provided. Um, we're going to have a couple of people there that I think people would uh, like to meet. Warren Womack is going to confirm with me this week saying he's going to be able to make it. Um, have a few other people from the Baton Rouge area that we can all learn from. But this event is uh it's really just designed to get bow hunters together you know we we uh we all follow the same passion we all uh, follow social media and, and all the hunting pages and whatnot but very rarely do we have an opportunity to get together and just kind of shoot the breeze so we're going to try this out for two hours this coming thursday um and we got a, a lot of great deals for people to take advantage of during those two hours you want to remind people what those are 
Absolutely. I mean, like you said, it's definitely about just getting together and socializing, you know, kind of a meet and greet. Let's get together. Let's talk bow hunting. Let's just hang out, maybe share a few secrets, maybe keep a few secrets to ourselves. But, you know, let's just hang out and have a good time. But look, while you're there, we're going to serve you food. We're going to give you a little, you're going to give you something to drink. But we're also going to have some deals in the store just for the people attending. So we're doing 10% off of all bow packages. Uh, that is that is pre-rigged packages, and that's, you know, buying a Matthews Verdicts or buying a Hoyt Carbon, you know, RX-3 and rigging it out. You're going to get 10% off of that. Uh, we're doing uh, Baker's Dozen on arrows, so we're doing buy six, get one free, buy 12, get two free. Uh, we're going to do 20% off of broadheads, 20% off of uh, releases. Uh, we're going to have some targets on sale, cases on sale. So we have our big archery sale in July, and it's kind of that early time to kind of kick off. But, you know, here we are just a few weeks out from, from bow season. We're going to give you another chance in case you missed out on it. So, you know, Thursday night, 6 to 8, everybody come out, have a good time. And, hey, while you're there, if you want to get a new bow and save a little money, now's the time. Plus, we're going to do 50% off on all tuning. So if you already got a bow, you don't need anything new, bring it in, let Troy handle it for you. We're going to get half off of the services. That's a great deal right there. I mean, that's worth it just uh, by itself. That's so. worth just to come and drop your bow off with me. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, look, we look forward to seeing you on Thursday. I appreciate you uh, I appreciate you joining us tonight, Lee, and uh, we'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Kyler. All right. Thank you, buddy. See ya. Well, let's let's move on i got another question for both of y'all um this is something i've i've thought about the last few years before the season begins maybe it's a little audacious to to assume that you're going to kill multiple deer maybe that's uh you know pretty ballsy thing to think or say beforehand but do you have a system of what you do with your first deer versus say your sixth deer. <laughs> I do. Jason, you answer first. I do. Uh, my first deer, the first couple of deer will go exactly how we've described it before. Uh, the last several deer, then I start getting into some of the more specialized things, smoked sausage, uh, I might have, uh, I might make some tamales with some of them, but the first couple of deer ensure that I can get through the, the summer with my family's needs, uh, with the steak, the ground meat, mm-hmm. uh, the, the roasts, uh, which I don't do a whole bunch of just the neck is really the only cut that I, I'll turn into a roast. Um, but like the first two follow that rhythm. The next two will go into some of the specialty things like tamales, like, ground like like i said smoke sausage what about you locks so i i follow um i'll have to give i guess i'm i'm a follow a leader kind of thing on this i i I got this my dad has always done this and i guess i've heard him say it um so many times that i end up doing it myself really it's just what we do but you know very similar to what jason just said we do so much with ground meat like so much, you know, throughout the summer, throughout the year. Um, so oftentimes, you know, as I've heard my dad say, you know, we need to, we need to kill a deer for, and, you know, fill up the freezer with burgers. So there's a lot of times that that first deer, I've seen my dad do it and I've done it. You know, we'll, we'll quarter up the entire deer and just get a whole bunch of ground meat. You know, we'll do that 
that first deer, maybe first two deer until we feel comfortable that we have enough packaged ground meat to last until next hunting season. And then we start, you know, getting those more specialty cuts. Now I do find myself just out of preference saying I'm going to do that, you know, like, let's just, for example, I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're inching up on, on hunting season right now. And I'm telling myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I only have a couple weeks worth of ground meat left and I've timed it out well this year. And I'm telling myself, I'm going to go shoot a doe early season with a bow and just get a bunch of ground meat made. But in reality, I'll end up cutting some of that tenderloin out and keeping it, you know, putting it on ice and bringing it home and doing it just because I, you know, I just, I get to, I get to cutting and, and cleaning and I'm like, ah, eh, I'm going to keep this piece, you know, but generally speaking, we stockpile the ground meat and then start doing the specialty stuff. So when you're doing ground meat, you're saying you're turning the whole deer into ground meat, you're grounding up the backstrap also? Yeah, we have. Dang. At times. That's some hurt feelings yep. out there, man. I like, yeah, like hurt my heart. No, I, like, you know, I, like I said, I end up cutting those back straps out, specifically getting those inner tenderloins. So I'll always end up getting at least one or both of those. And even though I'm, I may go into it with the intentions of getting the whole deer ground up, I'll 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 end up saving that back strap or whatever because it's just too. You know that commercial from the 80s when like the Indian sees like the pollution in the water and he has one tear rolling down his cheek? <laughs> like that's what I think about when I hear you say that you grind up backstrap into. Yeah, I'm hamburger. not going to, you know, that's not something that that's done a lot, but we're fortunate, you know, like you talking about, you know, what do you anticipate? You know, I, you know, I know that short of something unusual, we're going to have plenty of deer Yeah, and plenty of tenderloin, plenty of backstrap and yeah, I mean, it's not something we do a lot of, but if if October first rolls around and we've got you know a couple packs of ground meat left, the first deer is probably getting one hundred percent done into burger meat. Yeah, we talked a lot about ground meat. It's such a beautiful thing that you can have ground meat, and then when you thaw it out, add a couple of seasonings to it, and you've got breakfast sausage. Yep. Or a couple more seasonings to it, and you've got chorizo. Mm-hmm. And well, it's you just can just thing. alter that ground meat into, you know, something different yeah, with every pack. It's such a base, you know, and that, that, I mean, I guess that's, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about is if you've got a freezer full of ground meat, you can do a lot with venison for, you know, the entire year. Now, are y'all adding fat to your ground meat or y'all just having straight ground meat? I'm of the theory that the, I don't like to incorporate a whole bunch of outside meat. I do add fat, uh, but it's not going to be 50, 50. It'll be more 80, 20, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, 80 venison, 20, uh, outside fat. We do 20% beef fat. When I kill a deer, I need to, I need to break it down into ground meat. Um, I'll start hitting up butcher shops around town. Um, you know, and sometimes some, sometimes I can get everything I need from one. Sometimes I got to go to three. Um, I actually, I went to, um, what's it called? Martin's Martin's, uh, Whole Foods, I think, Martin's Specialty Meats or something like that in Baton Rouge last year, and um, I actually had them order me a 40-pound case of beef fat, um, just straight yeah. ribeye trimmings and um, and straight beef fat from um, – came in a case. I think it was like a dollar a pound. It was $40, 40, $40 $50, $50 for it, um, and uh, I, I broke that down. That lasted me almost two years um, in the freezer. 
for, 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 I think I got six or eight deer out of that, but I just, man, opportunity cost of chasing down beef at around town was, was worth yeah, that 50 bucks to me, you know? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't process my, I don't do my own ground meat. So yeah. So you just have it added to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just tell them what I want. So, um, Jason earlier asked you about, um, equipment. I just recently got a, uh, dedicated grinder and it's not anything fancy. It's, uh, I don't even know what brand it is. It's like, I don't know, one third horsepower or half horsepower or something like that. Um, and before that, I had been using the grinder attachment on my wife's KitchenAid mixer. And I am not joking you. I have probably put 15 to 18 deer through that mixer. Uh, it's very slow. You got to do it small strips at a time. It might take you a full hour and a half or so to grind up all the meat you need, need from one deer. But um, anybody that's out there that's thinking about doing their own meat, you don't have to buy a $300, $200, $500 grinder. It'll make it go faster. Don't get me wrong. But if you're if your wife or you has a KitchenAid mixer, you can get a forty nine ninety nine attachment for it, and it'll it'll get the job done. I did it for a lot of deer, a lot of deer. Um, so I just recently upgraded last season. Um, the there's one thing, there's one piece of equipment that I that I own that I absolutely love, and that's my sausage stuffer. Um, I got a, a, a cylinder, you know, a plunger style sausage stuffer from, um, Cabela's got it for Christmas a couple years ago. Um, it only holds five pounds at a time. So you got to fill it a lot. Uh, but that's a lot of fun making sausages, a family affair. You, everybody's doing it. Everybody's in the kitchen helping twist and, and, you know, do all the casing and all that stuff. But the only thing that I wish I had, and I'm probably going to buy one this year is a meat slicer. And when you're talking about corned venison, you're talking about slicing yeah. it super thin. Do you have one or y'all doing that by hand? I'm doing it by hand. I have a slicer. Um, I have one of those mandolin slicers. Mm-hmm. You ever seen that? Yep. And I, it has a, you can set it up to do meat and I've not done it. I, I like full disclosure, I almost cut my thumb off cutting status with it because yep. when they give you a hand guard, you know, use the hand guard. Yep. But, um, <laughs> where a little professional, semi-professional tip, when they give you a handguard, use it. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> uh, it will do that. I've, I've actually, and that's a pretty af- affordable, low bulk option for the kitchen. If you get a mandolin, it comes with a, whatever setup, you can set it up to do meat slicing. So Jason, y'all are cutting yours manually, huh? Yes. When I take the venison, uh, the corn venison, I'll, um, from from a cook stage, I'll put it back in the refrigerator, let it come back together again, and it seems to be much easier sliced by hand. Yeah. I do wish I had a hand uh, a meat slicer though. I keep an eye out for them on social media, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, and stuff. And one of these days, somebody's gonna let a five hundred dollar Hobart go for fifty bucks, and I'm gonna drive two hours to pick it up. But that day hasn't arrived yet. Um, so I, you know, going. One thing that I just recently did this past spring, um, I actually bought a grinder. I actually have a grinder. I don't, you know, I don't grind my own meat, but I just got one. And it's one of those, um, is the brand L-E-M? Mm-hmm. Does that yeah. sound right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It's one of those. Uh, I think it came from Cabela's or something. It's a decent size. I'm, I'm guessing based on other ones I've seen, it's probably mid-range in terms of size. I don't know what power it is, but I got it 
to grind turkey. So, um, you know, all these turkey breasts, and I start thinking, you know, what else can I do with these turkey breasts outside of the typical chunks and strips and marinade, you know, grill, whatever. So I actually uh, found some recipes on grinding up turkey breast and doing these turkey patties out of uh, ground turkey meat. So nice. um, I got a grinder. I'm, I might I might get into it this year. I don't you, might, you might start using it. I did. I did. <laughs> you know what? The more we talk on these podcasts, I just remember all kind of cool stuff. So, and I, this is a question <laughs> I wanted to ask, actually, uh, of Jason. So, last year, um, my dad killed a buck that he shot the deer on a Sunday afternoon. He didn't make a good shot. He hit it forward in the sh- low shoulder, top of the leg, and it went into the brisket. Didn't get in the vitals. And he was fortunate enough that he actually had another encounter with the deer the next Saturday and killed it. And, of course, it was bad sick, really bad sick, really bad, just nasty, infected, just, you know, as you can imagine. Um, long story short, on the grinder, I actually quartered the deer up and ground it and made dog food out of it. But I, I'm, I'm curious because all of the wound on this deer was forward, so none of his tenderloin backstrap none of his hams none of that was affected it was actually it looked like beautiful meat it didn't smell bad or anything but we were just nervous so we didn't eat it i had uh you know someone down the road you know hunting camp life made a comment about you know with this deer being so infected that that gets in the bloodstream and this deer's been living like this for a week and all this kind of stuff yeah, and it was like, I just, I don't know if that I would trust that. So, you know, like I said, I, I caped the deer out because it, it was a big buck and he got it mounted and all. And I caped it out and all of the, all of the wound, all of the infection, all of the nastiness was in his chest and not in his cavity. Like actually even his, his offside shoulder was fine. It was just really the low front part of that shoulder and his brisket area. And the, the meat, one thing I can say about it was the meat was dark. It was a dark, a darker purplish color meat than what you used to, but it had no odor. And um, I don't know. Have you? I don't. I, I didn't know what to think. My dad was real nervous about that. He was like, "Ah, we're not gonna eat this deer." You know, like I, I don't know. Somebody makes a comment about the the infection getting in the blood screen. Have you ever heard of that? Is that is that a real thing, or is that just something some dude down the road said? No, I think it's a real thing. Uh, I, I think I'd be like you. Uh, abundance of caution goes a long way. Um, I'm glad, you know, and to your, you know, to your credit, you didn't waste the meat. It did turn, no, you know, you I mean, I, some dogs with it. Oh, uh, dude, but, I, I fed my dog for like a month on that deer. I think if you were to, uh, if you were inclined to try it, uh, you know, obviously the first thing is, does the raw meat smell okay? Then my next step was, it would be, does the cooked meat smell okay? And then I would try a very small piece. Um, and, but not. To me, I, I think he did the right thing. Yeah, uh, I uh, like have, I said, it was visibly it looked as well. Visibly, it looked good. It didn't smell, but it just you know, I mean, that deer was in really bad shape. It's kind of a crazy story, the whole deal. But um, I mean, the deer was was bedded up on our place, right next to a food plot, just kind of in the wide open. You know, like he was dying. He yeah. was really, really sick, well, and it was. Just there's a good like, chance infection did set in, and it became septic. And, yeah. Um, I, I, oh, I and he was—he was, he was you know—he had lost his mind. He let my dad walk right up to him and shoot him, basically. Mm. 
Goodness yeah. gracious. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I hate, hate to see them go out like that, but sometimes uh, that's the way it goes, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, because, you know, I not only see my family, but I, I see good friends and neighbors, and uh, the last thing I want to do is get anybody sick. Yeah. Yeah. S- speaking, I of just that, never heard that before. I mean, it made sense. You know, you think about how how the body works and all, and, and that deer's his blood is circulating, his heart's still beating, yeah. you know, and he's obvious all of that is in him. And it may, you know, from a, just a, just a pure non-medical, non-scientific, but just logical, you know, thought process. It's like, okay, well, I mean, it makes sense. He's probably got, like you said, if he's septic and he's that bad sick, this is probably all in his bloodstream and then therefore it's all in his body. Right. So, so Jason, you, you, uh, you made a, a good point to be a good transition here. He said feeding family and friends, um, how many, how many kids do you have? I have two children, a 14 year old boy who loves to hunt and a 10 year old girl who loves to hunt. Nice. And Locke's got two kids. Locke, your kids are how old? Nine and 10. Yeah. You got two boys yep. and, and both of y'all are married. So y'all both have households, four people, four people that eat venison. How many deer do you need to make it through the year from the end of the season to the beginning of the next season? On average, I need at least five. So I can do it with three. Just uh, four to five is is better. You know, at three, we're rationing a little bit, especially mm-hmm. come this time of the year, we're rationing a little bit. But and my kids are a little bit younger, too. You know, I don't have a teenage boy that's eating me out of house and home yet. Yeah. So um, when you start the season, Jason, are you trying to get to? Are you trying to get to a certain number? Do you have a certain expectation of what you're trying to get to, or um, you're trying to hit kill all six? You stop at five. What do you do? No, uh, yeah, we shoot our our does early. Uh, our rut is late. Our rut starts in January. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm really starting to look at bucks hard come December, Christmas. Uh, but we we shoot all of our does early, get them processed, get them out of the way, uh, get them in the freezer, and then we start we start really looking for uh, the mature bucks after that. But really, I mean, five is what I need. We had we eat other things too. Uh, other than that, mm-hmm. uh, we trap and kill a lot of hogs. That helps supplement a lot of the uh, the protein. Uh, we do a lot of fishing, which helps. But uh, I prefer to have five than five deer in the in the freezer to to get me through. Mm-hmm. Lock, I think we talked about this last week. You, you need three, and then um, you know y'all yeah. are turning it into what, to ground meat mainly, right? What what ends up happening though with that? Like I said, I guess I I answer in the question on kind of uh, skeleton there, like necessity three and but what happens if i only put three in the freezer is i don't get as much specialty as much steaks we we do a lot more in ground meat to make sure we have enough of that because we eat so much of that so yeah i would prefer to have four or five that way i can do a lot more with the tenderloin and steak cuts and get some sausage made and, and all that sort of thing i'm the same way as jason i need five i'll give away the sixth um i have an uncle that that i'll uh he doesn't hunt anymore. He's, he loves to hunt, wishes he could do it more. But if I kill six deer, I'm driving straight to his house with a whole deer and dropping it off, and he couldn't be happier. Um, but it's it's fun, 
and it feels good to provide for people that don't have the ability or the know-how to provide this, that, you know, venison for themselves. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's something that we don't acknowledge enough. Uh, if you will, you know, we, we get, especially with how much money is involved in hunting these, these, uh, you know, in, in this generation, um, you know, we, we expect an ROI for our investment, uh, whether it be our time investment, our money investment, or both, we expect an ROI of a certain number of deer, um, or a certain amount of meat in the freezer. And, uh, it's fun to be able to, share that with people that aren't from the same, you know, you could say they, they don't come from the same environment or, or circumstance or they don't get a chance to do it. You know, what do y'all think about that? I'm on the same path you are, but I don't give it away. I find that the meat that I gave away went to, it went straight, well, not straight to the garbage can. Two years later, it was in the garbage can. Mm. Uh, so I prefer to cook it for people and have them come over. Okay. And, uh, and, and share it that way. Uh, I don't have anybody in my circle that, you know, pretty much fits in the description you just gave where they love venison and they, you know, they can't get it. Uh, the people that, I guess it's just the, the nature of what I've become. The people that love venison want to come eat it at my house. Yeah. Well, if you were yeah. cooking for me and I live within an hour of you, I'd be over there more often yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? I've, I've actually, I've actually been guilty a lot in the last several years of kind of getting below what I want. You know, I've had my wife fussed at me a time or two because I've given away meat, even meat that I've paid to process. Now, you know, I'm sensitive to the same thing Jason just said. I don't just, you know, I'm not just a, a food pantry for anybody that, you know, I'm not searching them out, but my grandparents and, some people I work with and stuff like that, you know, I, I, I end up giving away a lot because, you know, like what you said, Kyler, I think that it's an important part of, of who we are as hunters. You know, we're providers, not only for our family, but our, we can be for our, our community and other people around us. And I, you know, it, it, it I, I don't know how to really explain it, but there is something about it. it just feels good when, when somebody is, when you give somebody something that, you know, nobody else can go to the store and buy them. Mm-hmm. you know um and, it's and I'm, a, I'm guilty of that it's a, I, I guess it's important to acknowledge also that we don't have to do this um right nobody bow hunts for um survival anymore you know this is a time where i think if you're saying that you bow hunt to to provide for your family i think you're you're kidding yourself on the fact that if you were to spend the same amount of money that you did to kill a deer on food, you'd probably have more food. Um, and, and so if for some reason venison became, I don't know, legal and mass produced the way you could say farm raised redfish or salmon is, um, I think you'd have a lot of people that maybe wouldn't do it as much, or, or maybe they didn't do it. They didn't get into hunting for, um, you know, the, the experience or the tradition they got into it just for the providership of it. Um, and, uh, and getting something that they otherwise couldn't get their hands on. But it's, uh, it's important to remember that, you know, we're fortunate to be able to do this. Um, there's not a lot of people that are physically able to climb a tree 
There's not a lot of people that are physically uh, able to sit there for long periods of time and, and want to wait out a, a, an animal of any size, whether it be a hog, a deer, a doe, a buck, anything. And so, um, you know, taking a step back and rem- reminding ourselves that we don't have to do this. We do it because we, we love it. We do it because it's a passion. Just like for Jason, cook like Jason. If I if I asked you, what do you love more, cooking or hunting? Which one would you pick? Wow, that's, that's a tough. tough tough one, huh? It is tough. Uh, I I just like cooking what I have harvested. Not only harvested, but I've put in the time to find, to harvest, to process, and to bring it to the kitchen and turn something you know uh, a raw piece of meat into something fabulous mm-hmm. so to me it, it just comes full circle in the kitchen that way absolutely it's like the the icing on the cake uh it really is and you know even to share this with you know the people that i love and you know have my friends come over and you know show them something that I, i've created and to to see the look on their faces when like, man this is really good you know, this is, that's how it comes full circle. And, you know, I, I enjoy seeing that. Uh, now I still love to hunt. Let's not, let's not get carried away. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, that's how I, it, it all comes full circle. Like I said. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's important. Another thing that's important to mention about this is, um, I actually was listening to another outdoor hunting, um, theme podcast not long ago. And, I've heard this more than once, but I just heard it recently in terms of the negativity out there regarding hunting. There's actually been some people that have done some polling and, and, uh, you know, statistical data, study data where, you know, something like, I think it's something like 70, 30, where when you associate food and providing with harvest the approval rating of hunting goes up like 70 percent or something like that like something like trophy hunting as opposed to providing the pendulum like to the general public the pendulum swings like 70 percent or something you know of these random people that they, they survey like their reaction their take on hunting harvesting trophy hunting etc and then they turn that all around and they do the same study and they um, they introduce it as a provider, a food, uh, organic way to, to you know, uh, get, get your own food and provide for, for your friends and family. The approval rating goes up. So it's important that these kind of things are, are talked about and made, you know, into a, a sort of a culture. We should talk about all the benefits of wild. We shouldn't just talk about just the things that we love as hunters, you know, the tactics of how you're going to outsmart that trophy bug, how you're going to hunt the rut, how you're going to hunt the early season, all that's great. But, but we need to talk, we, we don't need to forget and talk about the fact that we are providers because it, there, there's a big world out there that doesn't like what we do, Yeah, you know, as hunters and providing shines a much, uh, more accepted light on who we are as, as sportsmen. It's a good point. It's a good. Point. I guess we don't. I don't. I don't know anybody that just trophy hunts at all. 
Uh, so because anybody that's what that, that just trophy hunts court, like, and I'm saying that from, yeah, you know, no, a, a misinformed pub, public opinion of quote unquote trophy hunting. Um, I don't know anybody that, that does that. So I don't either, but the problem is to a certain group of people, um, we're trophy hunters. That's all they really know us as yeah. because they don't really know who we are. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, I think the term itself doesn't lend well to us. You know, it, it actually has negative connotation that we're, you know, we cut the horns off and let the, the, the venison rot in the, in the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yes. Do I, I, I enjoy, I've got European mounts all over my, my man room. Do I enjoy looking at them? Absolutely. But what you don't see is that the freezer is full of, you know, what, what's South of those, that European mount. Um, do I, do I enjoy, you know, looking at the trophy part of it? Absolutely. I've got pintail sprigs and, and mallard uh, tails all over as well. I mean, I, I, I just, to me, that's just one more step in utilizing the entire animal. Yeah. The visual entertainment and, you know, it's a conversation piece and I can bring back, you know, my friends and yeah, this deer was here. And, uh, you know, you remember when you ate that cheeseburger? <laughs> <laughs> that's you know that's how it all comes to me but i think trophy uh trophy hunting is is a negative connotation i'll keep the horns too but I also eat the meat you know yeah. you you bring up a good point something that i started doing last year um and and I, I regretted not doing it sooner was um you know typically when when we have venison for dinner whether it's backstrap or it's an ingredient you know ground meat that's in chili or or spaghetti or whatever typically my wife's the one taking it out of the freezer. She's the one thawing it out. She's the one preparing it. You know, she's the one that cooks dinner every night because I get home for work, you know, too late to start it or, or and been on the road all day or something like that. And um, a lot of times I will ask her, hey, which deer was this? You know, like, wh- which one was it? And um, she'll be like, oh, you know, it's the it's the the buck you killed on December 28th. Or it's the doe you killed on October 4th. And I don't know, you know, mentally there's something awesome about knowing what you're eating. On the other side of things, it's a little demented to think about that too. But I think it adds a deeper appreciation for well, you know what? what you're eating. Knowing well, what you know what? it was. That's really cool that you say that. But, you know, just to kind of shine a light on the mentality of a hunter, you know, really, and it starts at an early age because, you know, you kind of made me think when you said that, you know, my, my oldest son has killed a couple of deer and when I cook and he knows we're eating his deer, Oh yeah. It's an event for him. Like it's, you know, and so no, I don't have this 10 year old boy, little boy that just wants to go shoot stuff. You know, he's not just a killer. The enjoyment and the pure excitement that he has knowing that his family is eating dinner and it's the doe that he killed with his grandpa last year is it's priceless. And you you wish that the anti hunters that don't understand us that think that we are all just trophy hunters could it could understand the pure innocence of that little boy and how excited he is that he provided meat for his family. Yep. And it just goes to show you what a hunter's heart really is. Yeah, I can't wait to experience that. My daughter's not even two yet, so we're not there yet. We do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing. And my little boy, I'll tell him that, you know, this is the the doe that you shot. And I get the exact same reaction from him. It's it's, the excitement in his mind's eye that he, like you said, he provided meat for for our house that night. Mm -hmm. 
and it also helps us relive the entire experience. It was so mm-hmm. cold that morning, and the wood ducks were swimming by us, and you know, we, the squirrels were chattering, and the the buck came up over, and it, it helps us relive the entire uh, hunt all over again, which is special for us. That's awesome. Well, look, let's let's start to let's start to wrap it up here, guys. I, I've got one more question for you, Jason Locke. If you got anything to add, throw it out there. But I um I I'm mainly curious. Like what your go-to recipes are. Like what what are your favorite dishes to make? It it could be deer, it could be uh, wild hog, it could be duck. What what's your favorite things to make? Uh, your family's favorite. My favorite. Uh, we make a uh, crawfish stuffed backstrap. Oh. We'll essentially Sounds make a crawfish awesome. stuffing, and we'll <laughs> That's freaking amazing. Uh, <laughs> we'll, I don't uh, want to answer now because mine's going to be so underwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just slit a pocket inside the backstrap, put it in a little meatloaf tin, uh, bake it till it's medium rare, and then eat it. Uh, it's kind of our little uh, surf and turf type meal. Nice. That's so awesome. Cajun I, surf and turf. I uniquely prepared as the co-host. I did my job, and I uniquely prepared for this episode because I cooked deer last night. I don't know if I consciously was preparing, but I did. And anyway, so this is one of the favorite things that we do. And, you know, admittedly, uh, it's not necessarily my favorite. I guess it wouldn't be my favorite way to cook deer, but it is my wife's favorite. So, you know, um, and it, it gets high on the list in our house. So what I did last night was I took some backstrap and I kind of did a roast, a kind of a stew roast. And what we'll do is... We'll lay that out in the bottom of a large crock and season it. Then I'll layer um, vegetables mm-hmm. on top. So onions, carrots, mushrooms. And then the last thing that we always put on the top is sliced, thin sliced tomatoes because the juice cooks down, right? So we started that last night probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock and cooked it slow all the way until after church. And then we came home and we, uh, you know, we made uh, buttered toast and rice and ate, you know, you just your traditional roast. But that's that's one of the most popular ways to eat it here at our house. Nice. I, I used to cook for a living, super fancy, you know, all the sauces and all that stuff. And um, my favorite thing when it comes to venison outside of, you know, straight you know, sous vide backstrap or something like that. My wife makes a meatloaf that, I mean, if I ever go to prison and I get a last meal, that's what I want to have is, is her meatloaf with, uh, with ground venison. Um, but, uh, my favorite thing to make and eat throughout the year is I make a um, maple bacon breakfast sausage that has, um, it's the fat and it is bacon ends in pieces. Like, I think it's like a, a three pound pack you buy at Walmart or whatever. And, uh, all that's ground into it. And it's got like real, real maple syrup in it and, uh, fennel seed and red pepper flakes and garlic powder and all that stuff. But that maple bacon breakfast sauce is stuffed in a casing, man. I love that stuff, man. I do. It's great. Mm, but, um, it's hard to beat. let's, uh, I think what we should do is, um, 
you know, Jason, if you've got some recipes that you can maybe screenshot me or something and we can put it up uh, on social media with this episode um, of a couple of your favorite things. You've written some art. I think it's worth saying as well. You've written some articles for Louisiana Bowhunter. It was mainly out of season stuff. Like we started in the spring and early summer and um, we need to keep that going, man. Do do some um, some monthly, possibly weekly uh, in-season recipes after this episode where people can learn from me and kind of pick up on your passion of cooking. Absolutely. I'd love to. Yeah, let's do that. Well, y'all have anything else before we wrap it up? Well, yeah, look, let me mention, um, I really, really kind of just recently found out, actually. So I live out in Clinton, East Feliciana. My church here, Bluff Creek Baptist, we're going to do and actually do a wild game banquet on Saturday, November the 6th. Nope, sorry. Saturday, November the 2nd. And we're doing a wild game cook-off. So cool. anybody in this area that's interested... Um, we're working on what all the prizes are going to be. We got some pretty good stuff coming. So if you're interested and you want to come to that banquet, it's obviously open to the public. And at six o'clock, we're going to do a a judge panel for, um, wild game. So if you got a wild game recipe and, you know, come out and take part in that. Cool. Well, I'm going to throw this, I'm going to throw this out there to finish us off here. Um, this week's shop of the week is Bowie Outfitters. Um, uh, just as you heard earlier in the um, shop of the week segment in the middle of the episode, we've got uh, a the very first ever Louisiana bow hunter bow hunter meetup that's going to be this Thursday, September twelfth at Bowie Outfitters. It's from six to eight p.m. Um, we're providing food and drinks, uh, a lot of great archery deals going on. We've been wanting to do like a community event like this for a while. And so we're going to hold these all over the state throughout the season, uh, during the week and, um, and have them at different archery shops. So it's two hours this Thursday. Uh, Warren Womack is, um, saying he's going to come out to it. Uh, he's, he's still got to give me his, his total thumbs up on it, but I think we'll have some pretty cool people there to be able to share some stories and learn from. So I hope to see y'all there. But, um, Jason, appreciate your time. Locke, appreciate your time. Thank you all for joining us tonight. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you all kill this season and how you all prepare it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thanks. See you later. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.